Base by. Whoa, what? Base base by. I'm so tired. <laughs> Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is August 3rd, 2021, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining me in New York is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Sarah. I'm actually not in New York, just for the record, just to fact check you. Where are you? I'm in D.C. Oh, Bethes- well. Bethesda, Maryland, to be more specific, but... <laughs> You know, same time zone, so that's new. Close enough. This is my new thing. Uh, whoever is, uh, whichever host is nearest to me geographically gets introduced first. And Neil Payne is uh, still on vacation this week, but we look forward to calling into his bunker next week. Did you get up early this morning at, uh, you know, 4 a.m. Eastern to watch Simone Biles on the balance beam? I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you I didn't. It's been funny because I've been hanging out with my mother-in-law a lot who's obsessed with the Olympics. But um, she's got this great quality of telling me what happens yeah. in anything that's being shown on tape. So yesterday, I like we started, uh, I started to watch the soccer game, which was on. And I don't I mean, of course, it was on delay because it was like, you know, what, 6 p.m. here. And she goes, oh, this game. Yeah. I feel so bad for them. And I'm like. Oh, so I take it they didn't win. Wait, how did you avoid an entire day of not knowing that? I, that, that was, was the, a weird one. That the, was the usually, first thing I saw yesterday morning. Usually it's the push alerts that have been ruining. And yeah. I could, and I know, I could turn the push alerts off. <laughs> no, no, never that. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think I got one on that. So I actually didn't know, and I was out and about most of the day, uh, so I didn't actually know that result But until, you know, my... Mother-in-law, you know, let me know in the yeah. beginning of the match. Um, <laughs> well, then you didn't have to watch, so that was nice. <laughs> I still watched. That was that was a tough one. Yeah. Um, I, I was so confused by that penalty. I don't understand why. I still don't understand why. I've watched the I've watched it like 12 times, and I still don't think it was a penalty. It was but... weird because it was like so, you know, I know it's in the box, but it really kind of, that's like... It wasn't the dangerous part of the box and they were kind of like facing the other direction so it didn't like look like it was a threat if anything like didn't deserve a penalty it was probably that <laughs> even if she did kick her foot or whatever they said she did well and she also was like she was trying to kick the ball too i mean when players collide i don't know yeah that's an interesting idea though you should have to take the pk from wherever the foul occurred in the box so right. if it happens over there you should have to take it from over there and it would have been a weird angle <laughs> right, but what if it yeah. happens like right at the line that see this is we're revolutionizing sure soccer. sure why not yeah. <laughs> on today's show we'll talk about major league baseball's surprisingly wild trade deadline then we'll interview author and 538 contributor devora myers about olympic gymnastics and finally we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week Baseball's trade deadline is normally July 31st, but this year it came a day early. Maybe that's why the Colorado Rockies did nothing. They thought they had more time. For the rest of the league, it was a pretty active deadline. On the buyer side, the Dodgers picked up Max Scherzer and Trey Turner. The Giants landed Chris Bryant, and the Yankees beefed up their already big lineup with Joey Gallo and Anthony Rizzo. On the seller side, my Minnesota Twins look unrecognizable now. The Nationals appear to be suffering through their own personal version of the Thanos snap. 
And the Chicago Cubs basically exiled their 2016 World Series champions, which Neil foresaw just a couple weeks ago. On ESPN's Baseball Tonight, Buster Olney took this opportunity to consider how this trade deadline shapes the legacy of that curse-breaking Cubs team. It's clear there are going to be tons of 2016 Cubs reunions in years to come. You're going to have Chris Bryant probably throwing at first pitches to Anthony Rizzo like the last out of the 16 World Series. You do wonder how they're going to feel about their legacy. I think a perfect historical comp, the 1986 Mets, a team that was beloved in New York, uh, won one championship, and then the question that sort of hung over was, why not more? I, I do think for Anthony Rizzo, for Chris Bryant, it's going to really benefit them to change the scenery, to go to a different place, because this seemed to weigh on the whole team. Yeah, it did. Jeff, this take was picked specifically for I know. you. <laughs> this is, are we sure it wasn't uh, me who said this? Did you? Um, are you Buster Olney? Yeah, that is the question. <laughs> no, I mean, this this deadline really does represent the, the dismantling of the Cubs. What advice can you give them as a, as a fan of the 1986 Mets? Well, I mean, it's interesting. If, if you take away the um, the fact that I'm sure that 2016 Cubs team did less cocaine and amphetamines and <laughs> destroyed fewer airplanes and gotten into fewer um, bar fights. They are pretty similar. I like the <laughs> comp. Um, you know, I think, you know, part of me wants to say you could say this almost about like any team, mm-hmm. like, except for that Yankees, like Jeter, Pettit, Bernie Williams team that seemed to win enough uh, titles. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of teams that had like a great core and only won one. It's hard to win titles. It, it it just doesn't happen very often. I mean, you look look back at those Braves teams of the 90s when they had Maddox and Glavin and, and all those in Smoltz and all the great pitching, they only won one title. So it does happen a lot. But that being said, yeah, I, I think the, the comps are similar. I mean, the 86 Mets... You just go, you know, go down the years in 85. They had 98 wins, didn't make the playoffs. Uh, probably needed a wild card back then <laughs> of some kind. Uh, 1986, 108 wins, won the World Series. 87, 92 wins, no playoffs. 88, 100 wins, lost to the Dodgers in the NLCS. And then the, that was kind of it. You look at the Cubs, 2015, 97 wins, lost to the Mets in the NLCS. 2016, 103 wins, won the World Series. 2017, 92 wins, lost to the Dodgers in the NLCS. And then 2018, 95 wins, lost to the Rockies in the wild card. I mean, those are great. That's a great four-year stretch with a solid, exciting core. And I think, you know, the way the Mets had Strawberry and Gooden and then this kind of, you know, they actually were more of like a uh, put-together team because, you know, Carter and Hernandez and guys that were traded for or acquired Whereas the Cubs were mostly, except for, you know, Ben Zobrist and I guess John Lester and Araldus was on that team when they won. But, you know, besides for that, you know, they, they really were all their core. And to win that much, it's tough. I, I think they probably could have won more. But at the same time, it, it also kind of makes sense. Like, I think the aggressive rebuild, at least in this case, you know, with expiring contracts and, and Rizzo and Bryant, what are you going to do? Resign those guys so they're they're on the team like deep into their thirties? I think we've talked enough about how that's probably not a great idea in current baseball, unless you're the San Francisco Giants, where you know 
(laughs) age doesn't matter. Right. So they're in a tough spot. But I think if you're in a position where you don't think you're going to win this year, you don't think you have enough this year, which they certainly seem to be in that position. This is kind of, to me, the shrewd move. But yeah, it's tough to see. I think it's interesting that they're it's the this dismantling happened now. You know, they they didn't make the playoffs in 2019. They only won 84 games. You know, the 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 dynasty idea was really over by that point. And then it took a couple more years for them to really, you know, for them to really fall apart. This year you'd even looked for a hot second like they might be buyers at the trade deadline, which yeah. like you know, especially if, the beginning of the year, they were yeah, they, were, they looked great. If they had won instead of lost in the you know first week of July or whatever, you know, this might be a completely different scenario. And that's how quickly things change in, in baseball from one season to the next. As a fan of a team that just you know it ha- is also rebuilding completely, it it's hard as a fan. And I'm sure I know <laughs> I know a lot of distraught Cubs fans who really are going to miss Rizzo and Bryant. And and by I mean and Baez and like everybody it, it's it, it's a tough situation for sure, but this is kind of the reality of baseball. And so you have to, I, you want your team to rebuild. You don't want your team to just sit and you know live on the memory of five years ago. So and then we've we've seen these teams kind of take these half measures, these kind of quasi rebuilds, like the the Phillies come to mind where they're, they're always kind of like somewhere in between rebuilding and, <laughs> and loading up. And I think they are right now. And, and I don't know if that's the best approach. Um, while I do think like the Phillies, it's smart this year, frankly, because I think the Mets are pretty vulnerable uh, first place <laughs> team, as I've said numerous times. And I don't think I'm just being pessimistic. I don't, I think sometimes it's, it, it might be better just to be a little more aggressive with it and, and to really, you know, get rid of all the, the big money you have to pay, especially when a team is willing to part with, you know, significant prospects who are, who are close to major league ready, which in a lot of cases is some of these trades um, that certainly applies. Yeah. It's such a crapshoot when you're, when you're dealing with prospects, you just never know. And I think that's, what's frustrating as a fan. It's like, I'm losing a player I really like and I know can perform and like, okay, these guys, will so, they be good? Who knows? So now you get to wait. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's, that's fun. I don't know. This, this trade deadline was, was very active. Lots and lots of players. Maybe, you know, I saw it like 10 all-stars are now with a different team, which is the, you know, some astronomical number. What, what do you think made this trade deadline so active? Why were teams really going out and getting guys? Well, I think it's, I think it's a confluence of a, a few different things. I think for one, just having the Nationals and the Cubs who are loaded with talent, willing to, to have a, a fire sale in the middle of the season, that almost is enough. If you if you think away, think about it, if you take away Rizzo, Bryant, uh, Scherzer, Turner, all the big names, uh, Schwarber, all the big names from those two teams, then it kind of looks like a more normal trade deadline. So I think having those two teams, two teams that have won the World Series, you know, within five years, willing to get rid of everyone, that's going to sort of uh, obviously change the landscape of the deadline. I also think you have a team like the Dodgers that's willing to just blow through the, you know, luxury threshold and just spend whatever they want and get whatever they want. And then have all these teams like the Padres uh, and the Giants who are in the Dodgers division 
under pressure to kind of keep up with the what the Dodgers are doing, that that's going to sort of create a, a little bit of a feeding frenzy. But I think there's other factors too. I think the fact that last year was such a strange year and we didn't really have a you know proper trade deadline made this kind of a a double trade deadline. Um, mm. Because I think some of these some of these guys in a in a normal season a year ago probably would have been traded. So so I think it's a number of factors, and I think th- there's also just a lot of teams that it, you know because of the number of playoff spots, you know, and I think we speculated on on this a little bit, and I think Neil ultimately was right that you know even teams that are pretty sure of their playoff spots doesn't mean they're going to stand pat. Um, they don't want to be like one and done in a in a wild card or anything like that. They want to they want to go deeper into the playoffs. So I think a lot of the sort of second tier of elite teams uh, were were really incentivized to, to go out there and make their teams even better. Yeah. Which which trade at the deadline was your was the best, do you think, in your mind, did the most for for the team acquiring the players? Uh, you're not going to like to hear this, but I actually think the twin what the Twins got for Barrios to the Blue Jays I don't know how you feel about him as a pitcher. To me, he 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 looks more like an innings eater than an ace. And to yeah. get to top, they, like, look, they got a better haul than than Washington got for Scherzer. I mean, like, it, it, to me, it, it seemed like a really smart move to get rid of a kind of second starter and to get that much back for for him. So that you know. Part of me is just saying that to make you feel better, Sarah, but... <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I've, I really liked him. I like him too, yeah. He was very frustrating because he it seemed like he should be... He never really made that next jump, um, which, you know, it, it, you don't necessarily have to, except if you're the ace of the staff, it really... It's a, it's unfortunate. Um, so I think he's in a, a position where he can make Toronto better, and I do think you're right, the... the the what they got in return for him was was quite good although again we don't know for sure and won't know for a little while yeah but and he's he's also not a rental he he, i think he has another year so it makes sense for the blue jays who might not quite have enough this year but at least they'll they'll be in good position next year as well because they're so young anyway um i also really like the chris bryant move for the giants i was happy the giants did something because you know I'm pulling for them this year for some reason. I, I think it's a good story. And um, yeah. I really just don't want the Dodgers. Well, and <laughs> Now I, that I'm I away how... from Los Angeles, I can say this. Oh, I could have said it there. <laughs> no one cares. <laughs> no, no one cares. No, the, and the Dodgers moves are interesting too because they really are shook that, <laughs> that the Giants are doing so well. So it's like, okay, we're just going to get everybody. Anybody, anybody left, come here. Come to L.A. That was another unique thing about this year is that two of the bigger spenders, the Mets and the Dodgers, Scherzer's kind of replacing Bauer, who's now gone indefinitely. They probably wouldn't make that move if they had Bauer, um, which was, you know, the reason they went out and got Bauer to get another ace because they, they, they can't have enough aces. No, never. And, and the Mets were kind of getting biased to replace Lindor, who's now out for a long period of time. So there, in some ways, it was these like rich and newly rich teams replacing guys they had already gone out and acquired in the previous offseason. Yeah, it is funny that like there's only so many... I mean, look, the Dodgers are trying to win. Or they're trying to repeat. repeat. So they are going to take any edge they can, obviously. But, like, a player like Scherzer is just one of their aces now as opposed to, like, 
It's just, which is wild. But, you know, it's interesting how much his impact can be on that team versus on literally any other team. Well, you you got to kind of build a team, you know, for a best of seven series or yeah. even shorter. And to have, you know, Bueller, Scherzer, Kershaw, like, that looks on. great. And that's sort yeah. of, you know, that's why I think like one of the, the teams that had the worst deadlines is the Boston Red Sox because... You know, they didn't really do anything except for Hansel Robles to address their pitching. And, and who are they, they going to run? They didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, maybe Chris Sale comes back, but who, who are they going to, like, run out there in the playoffs? Like, it's, they're definitely going to be at a disadvantage in that format. Yeah, the Padres, too, you would have liked to see some, you know, more from them. But, you know, there's also, like, only so many huge moves that can be made at well, a trade deadline. Yeah, and they, in their defense, they were actively trying to get Scherzer. Yeah. But, you know, the Padres were a team that made a lot of their big moves, like the Mets, uh, prior to the season. So that kind of, they kind of already, you know, spent a lot of their chips, you know, going into this. So there's only so much they could do. And obviously getting Scherzer would have been a coup, but it didn't happen. Yeah, I I did want to talk about the the team I uh, I shaded um, in my intro, which was the Rockies. What what was the deal I, with Colorado? I don't know. It doesn't make any <laughs> sense. I, I honestly, it's one of the more perplexing things I've seen a front office do. If you have a guy who you know is going to be gone next year anyway, I remember when the Mets didn't trade Jose Reyes. He was winning the batting title that year at the deadline when he had on the last year of his deal and it was just kind of like oh great we get to hold on to him on this bad team oh and he's gone and we don't get anything for him why and you know even if you want to hold on to story trevor story why not trade gray or trade some of the pitching some of the relievers they had like it didn't make any sense i don't really know what they're doing at all yeah it really it just i I mean look there are lots of different ways to build a baseball team and, you know, some of them are more painful than others. I, this doesn't seem to be, like, any strategy, <laughs> which I know can't be true. But, like, if you you have no chance, but you have trade chips, why aren't you trying to make yourself better next for the future? You're just going to be in this position over and over and over if you're not even trying. This is worse than tanking, I think. Like, yeah. tanking, you're actively yeah. the, building. This, this doesn't make sense. And and I no. think Colorado Colorado's already kind of behind the eight ball because it's just a difficult place to build a team. You're never going to entice, you know, a really top-tier pitching talent to go there in the thin air. And you also have these hitters putting up these big numbers, which even though they're inflated, they still seem to like uh, be enticing for other teams. So it's hard to hold on to some of these guys. And yeah, it doesn't make sense. I mean, I think maybe, you know, the psychological impact of what's going on in Washington, what's going on in Chicago and Minnesota to a certain extent of trading away all your stars is just tough for certain teams. And in their case, they just didn't want to do it. Um, after already losing Arenado in the last offseason. So I, I don't know. I mean, that's no reason to do it. I, I'm sure Rockies fans, you know, smart Rocky fans are, are not happy with it. So I'm not really sure their angle there. Yeah, I, I don't think Trevor Story was really sure. <laughs> no, he's definitely not happy. Here he was thinking he was going to get to go play for, for a contender. And now it's like, nope. I mean, if the guy like actively 
appears to not want to be there, get rid of yep. him. Get see what you yeah. get for him. Is this like a parenting move? Like you're not gonna, we're not trading you until your attitude Im- improves, buddy. Here, <laughs> <laughs> you go go to your room, and in this case, your room is Coors Field. Yeah, I don't know. It was such a weird thing. Again, I get, I get. I get as a fan not wanting to lose your stars, but as a fan, I also want I want my team to be better next year. At least uh, you guys held on to Buxton. I mean, there's some hope there. I mean, yeah, and it's kind of like the Nationals holding on to Juan Soto. It's like, okay, Juan Soto, here, just give us a couple <laughs> years. Uh, we got to yeah. figure some things hang, out. Hang so. on, kid. <laughs> yeah, you know it's funny. I was like, this is this makes no sense for me to be devastated by the loss of Nelson Cruz. He is 500 years old. He's not going to play that much longer. No. <laughs> he, I mean, is this his last season? Very possibly. I mean, he might come back next year. But, like, but I was devastated. <laughs> and that's, like, like, it would make no sense for them to keep him for this no, <laughs> crap heap of a year. But I still was very sad to see him go. Um, luckily, he's on my fantasy team, so I, I still get He's still on my team. All right. <laughs> that's what matters. Yeah. That's all that matters. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, I think we can take a break from baseball for now. In a moment, we'll come back to talk about the Olympics. If you have been getting up early or staying up late to watch the Olympics, take a bow. You folks are also champions. After Simone Biles withdrew from the team final and all-around competition last week, she was back in action today on the balance beam and will be taking home a bronze medal. There is so much to talk about in gymnastics right now that we wanted to consult the woman who wrote the book on the sport, Devorah Myers, the author of The End of the Perfect Ten and several articles on 538.com. How's it going, Devorah? It's going it's going great, um, I guess. I don't know what time it is. <laughs> <laughs> what is time anymore? <laughs> who can say? Yeah. Is it morning? Is it night? I don't know. <laughs> so let's start by talking about about Simone and her her return this morning, her win on balance beam. I mean it was not the gold medal, but I think the bronze is I, I I don't think it really even matters what that she won a medal or not, but I think feels like she'll be pretty happy with the bronze. She seemed really happy with the bronze, and I think we were all really happy for her. I know I've never been so nervous watching a beam routine, especially by Simone, who typically hits. So you're typic- you're mostly at ease when you're watching her. And this was just the most nerve-wracking experience that I've had in a long time watching gymnastics. Yeah. Now, she she altered her routine um, a, a little bit, really just the dismount, right? The rest of it was was what she typically does. Yeah. So typically, she does two back handsprings into a full twisting double back. But as everyone knows, she's been dealing with like the twisties, getting lost in the air on her flips and her twists. So she reverted to an old dismount that I don't know, I don't know how many years it's been since she did a straight double pike, no twist, but she went back to that dismount um, and no twist in it. So she wasn't going to get lost and hit it beautifully. And she, that was a change in the difficulty score by a little bit. She had a 6.5 difficulty on her qualifying beam and this one was 6.1. So it did lower her start value a little bit. I think there were some people who thought her, her routine was beautiful. Why doesn't she get the gold? But it wasn't as difficult. Yeah, it wasn't as difficult. And she did miss a connection in the routine itself. So I'm off the top of my head, not exactly sure how much she lost due to the change in dismount. But she also lost a little start value for breaking a connection in the routine. And also in terms of even before all of this, you know, before she withdrew, and this whole thing started to happen, 
the Chinese, like um, Guan Chen Chen, had the highest start value coming in to the competition. So if she had hit and Simone had hit even even before all the changes were made, I still think that Guan Chen Chen would have come out ahead. And her, yeah, and her routine was gorgeous today too. Yeah, China brought like, like really good beamers, <laughs> really, really good beamers, like more than they, maybe more than they needed. <laughs> <laughs> they had some trouble on some other, uh, on the other apparatuses. So it was nice to see them really hit on these routines. Yeah, they did so, they did so beautifully in qualifications, but they just had a terrible team finals and then just haven't really performed up to their potential. So it was really exciting to see them hit on this event where they've just, looked amazing in qualifications. So back to Simone and and just this just this whole week for her. You know, her her decision to withdraw was met with, you know, some negative responses that you would expect, you know, you're never going to expect Pierce Morgan to root <laughs> for the athlete obviously. But there was a lot of support for her from the gymnastics community and and beyond. What did you take away from the reactions? Um, I mean, first of all, it was very heartening. I know that there were some terrible white men who had opinions <laughs> about what she did, but you know, we could set those aside because they're always going to have those opinions. Right. But I think you know, most of the reaction was pretty positive, and gymnasts understood what she was going through, and it led to a really interesting conversation about you know the twisties, which is something that you know gymnasts and coaches are familiar with, but obviously the wider population didn't know anything about this phenomenon, which is you know, sort of akin to the yips and like baseball. Mm-hmm. And, and just also like all of the, it really led to a discussion of the risks of the sport, which I think we all kind of know, but we don't think about that much. You know, when they go up in the air and they land safely almost all the time that we watch, you don't really know like how risky the sport is. And, and I think, you know, gymnasts like saw that the greatest of all time, experiences the twisties and you know and she said in her stories this was wasn't the first time that this has happened to her just happened in the the worst possible time during the olympics you know and it takes some time to work through it so she just didn't have that luxury of time to fix it it was amazing to hear all of these other gymnasts former gymnasts um in particular talking about their experiences with it too nastia lucan brought it up on the nbc broadcast which i think is useful to hear that other that so many people have gone through the same thing and that you know we do forget how hard it is and how dangerous it is when it looks so easy (laughs) I mean it obviously doesn't look easy for me to do but it looks like they're doing it so easily and it is not easy yeah I think you know one of the things that happens in gymnastics is that the job is to make it look easy and it's almost like to hide the effort hide the work that goes into it and and so every once in a while someone makes a mistake um falls and she have this like momentary glimpse into how difficult it is but then it's very easy to forget when people are hitting so it was really really useful for this conversation to happen especially at a time when the entire world is focused on gymnastics. And, you know, in addition to just, you know, former high level gymnasts, like many of whom have spoken out in support of Simone and have talked about their own experiences with mental blocks. I've even seen like, you know, people I know who maybe didn't do gymnastics at the highest level talk about publicly how, you know, for years they felt so much shame that they couldn't work through these blocks Mm. and they didn't realize like how widespread it was and how normal it was and how really 
there's nothing to be ashamed of there. You know, it was just, this happens. In some cases you can work through it, but it's not like, a, it's not because you're not working hard enough. You're not disciplined enough and you don't want it badly enough. Right? Like we tell, we say all these stories about like, oh, she hits because she wants it more than the person who falls. Like, that's not it. <laughs> yeah. 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 And you almost think maybe, maybe it will help people to get through them when they don't feel quite so alone, when it's not so isolating and they put even more pressure on themselves. If Simone Biles has dealt with this, I can deal with this. You know, I mean, I think there is something to that where people feel like they're in it together a little bit. Yeah, I really, yeah, I really do think that's what's happened. As I said, I've seen, you know, former gymnasts, maybe not even notable names talk about like how they wish they had known and how they wish their coaches had treated them differently and just, you know, step back and looked at it as a problem to be solved because this happens not as a problem with them. You know, there's not something wrong with them. It's just, this happens sometimes in the sport. There's a process for fixing it or addressing it. And we're just going to have to tackle it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's, let's talk about another thing where gymnasts are very united right now, and that's uh, warm-ups before the event finals. So one-touch warm-ups were all, <laughs> were all in the conversation over the weekend. A lot of people were blaming the lack of warm, warm-up for Jade Carey's stumble on vault, Suni Lee's misconnection on bars in those apparatus finals. How much do you think that warm-up matters? It's hard to say how much to how much you can attribute individual errors to the lack of one touch, right? Because, you know, there's a lot of things that go into it. And, you know, someone like Sunisa Lee and someone like Jade Carey, they've been, you know, at world championships, competed in apparatus finals. So this is certainly not their first experience with lack of one touch. But it is their first Olympic Games. And the competition is and it's just it's the end of the week. It's exhausting. Jay Carey was thrown into the all-around final for the first time because of Simone's withdrawal. So that was like more, you know, just more effort and more energy than she had initially planned to, planned to expend. So, you know, there's that. There's this exhaustion, both mental and physical exhaustion factor. So, it's, yeah, so it's hard to say, okay, this mistake is because of one touch. But I think you could take a step back and say, you know, like, hey, all of these gymnasts are telling us that they they needed to prepare, they need to stay warm, they need to feel confident. And, you know, the conversation around Simone has opened up how dangerous this sport is. So if the gymnasts are all united together and saying, we really need the one-touch reinstated for the apparatus finals, then maybe this is something we need to consider very seriously. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it, I mean, on the one hand, you have all these gymnasts saying, this is what we want, regardless of outcome. And then on the other hand, you have Fig saying, well, TV, which is especially hard to take when everything is edited and tape delayed and, and really none of that matters. We wouldn't have to see the warmups in this context if, if they didn't want to. Yeah, it's hard to really understand that thinking, especially I think watching, you know, I didn't watch a lot of the NBC primetime broadcast because I had gone up early in the morning and like... <laughs> I had to write stories during the right. <laughs> you, you had you had some deadlines for me, if I recall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I didn't see all the broadcasts, but you know they, they were incredibly edited, and you know even in the vault final, they didn't even show the bronze medalist. You know they like left out the the person who placed third, who won a historic bronze medal for you know South Korea, twenty five years after her father won a silver medal in Atlanta on the same event. Yeah, and 
And she also did the hardest vault in the final. And so it was the most spectacular piece of gymnastics and and they didn't show it. So yeah. I'm not I'm taking their arguments about TV and what TV wants with a grain of salt, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because it's not like the TV broadcasts have been excellent. Well, right. And and they have control over them already. Like they can show what they want to show already. So it doesn't really they obviously are showing what they want to show already. So it really doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, and I think people want to see more gymnastics. I mean, yeah. especially in the Olympics, everyone even people who don't pay attention to sport like I do year round, they are interested. They want to learn more. And warm-ups could be an opportunity to really teach people more about gymnastics. And they could see what goes on. They can see the sort of preparation. It's really interesting to go to a competition live versus watching on TV. And you're kind of seeing, you know, the backstage a little bit at the same time as you're seeing the stage. And I think that's also kind of neat. And the commentators who are Olympic gold medalists themselves can talk about what's, what we're seeing in the warmups. Maybe if someone falls, it can add a little suspense. If they fall in the warmups, will they hit in competition? So there's all these ways in which this could be exciting and interesting to the viewer um, instead of, and they just look at it and they're like, well, we can't show this. I, I don't yeah. get it at all. Yeah, absolutely. It really doesn't make any sense. One of the really heartwarming things during the competition was how supportive gymnasts were of each other, particularly the Americans and the Russians. I'm sorry. I thought they were our enemy. What's happening here? (laughs) Is the Cold War finally over? I mean, if you look at like Boomer Twitter, it isn't. (laughs) Um, And don't. Don't look at Boomer Twitter, right? (laughs) I mean... I mean, it's been over for quite some time. This camaraderie is not new. It's just really been front and center at this Olympics in a way that I don't think it has been before. But yeah, we've known, if you follow gymnastics, you've known for years about how the different gymnasts from all around the world follow each other, are pretty supportive of one another. And it was really lovely to sort of see it front and center. And so now everyone can see it and I hopefully we'll stop framing the competitions in this way of like cold east versus west Russia versus the United States you know I you know you saw how genuinely happy the Americans were when the Russians were won their first team gold ever as you know as Russia I guess it's not it's was it Russian Olympic Committee ROC right yeah ROC <laughs> I mean um I guess we're we're pretending we're that supposed to know, say yeah that that's a thing yeah <laughs> it's, a, it's like some sort of like legal fiction um that we right, created yeah. but really Russia <laughs> has won its first team Olympic gold medal ever you know, the yeah. last time they won, they were still, it was a unified team, but it was basically the Soviet Union because it was still drawn from all the republics, the the various gymnasts who competed. This is a really historic moment for them. And the Americans were very happy. They have three team gold medals themselves in the past 25 years since this last happened or 20 or 30 years. So I don't know. And, they, and Angelina Melnikova is also was in a series on the Olympic Channel with Morgan Hurd and Chenny Lee. And so they've just been interacting with one another a lot, you know, and um, I spoke to Kathy Johnson via DMs on Twitter. And she spoke about just how much that in their, her day, she competed through the 70s and through the 80s. She really wanted to get to know the Soviets. And, you know, they tried, but, you know, there were language barriers, geographic barriers, Mm -hmm. obviously it was much more difficult, but even still, she had some really lovely interactions with the Soviets who very much respected her and her gymnastics. I really like that. I mean, that seems like what 
the Olympics should be about, you know, learning from each other, supporting each other. It's not a zero-sum game. Yes, there are awards given out, there are medals, but everyone, wanting everyone to do their best and supporting them and doing that is so much better than, like, rooting for someone to fall. Like, that's a terrible way to go into watching anything or, or I assume, competing. Yeah, no, and it's and especially striking, you know, given, you know, the time that Kathy competed, this was like a proxy um, proxy battleground for the Cold War. And so it was really important. Like there was a lot invested in, um, particularly in sports like gymnastics, because the Eastern Bloc countries were seen as excelling in gymnastics. So it was very important for the United States to to win or to try to win and win some medals. So it's really great in that way to see that even in the midst of all of that, like they were focused on the gymnastics and respected each other for their performances. Absolutely. So the piece you wrote for us about the developmental timeline in gymnastics, that really changed the way I look at the sport. I I feel like there were so many threads like that running through these games. Development, mental health, athlete safety, sportsmanship. Do you think the Tokyo Olympics will end up changing what the public thinks about gymnastics? It's hard to say because, you know, you have with a sport like gymnastics, you have these like moments where everyone is talking about it. You know, everyone has an opinion. I get text messages from people who like I haven't heard from in several years asking me questions. (laughs) It's like, oh, you remember I exist. Great. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy to answer them. And then it just sort of quickly recedes. So it's really hard to say, I think at this point, I think, you know, time will tell what sort of impact this has, I think, you know, we are seeing something of a change, you know, during the pandemic, this, the athlete activism we've seen in college athletes, obviously people trying to challenge rule 50 at the Olympics or talking about challenging rule 50, someone like Simone standing up for herself in not just at the Olympics, but in the, in the last few years that she's been very vocal about USA Gymnastics and how they enabled her abuse for sexual abuse. So mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of things happening. I think a lot of things sort of culminated here. But it will take some time to see what comes of it, especially after the spotlight of the Olympics goes away. And we'll see what happens then. Yeah. And, you know, and also having someone like Simone in the sport, who is like, one of the most famous athletes on the planet, period, regardless of sport, regardless of gender. And Gymnastics really maybe hasn't had that maybe since Nadia, if they, if they if we've ever had it. And she's obviously so much more accessible than Nadia was in yeah. the in the seventies. So it's a really interesting time for gymnastics specifically, but I think sports in general, as athletes sort of figure out how to leverage their their labor power. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, we'll see that we'll see that with college sports in general. Um, But also in gymnastics, you know, it's exciting to know that, you know, Jade Carey can finally go to Oregon State, Sudi Lee can go to Auburn, they can make money off of their gold medals now, which is kind of amazing. It was truly insane when you think about like the choices that someone like Jordan Weaver made and had to make in late 2011 when she was just like 15 or 16 years old. Um, Jordan Weaver was a 2011 world champion, was a favorite to win the Olympics in 2012, and she had to make a decision. Does she take her scholarship to UCLA or, or does she go pro and, you know, pursue these opportunities during the very limited period of time when, the, when they will be available to her? 
and and she went pro which i think is a smart move but she did lose a lot and she didn't get a chance to compete as a college gymnast and she ends up becoming like team manager at ucla moving mats really really becomes part of the team but it was also a little bit sad because she clearly had more gymnastics left in her she's such an immensely talented athlete and there was her career definitely didn't have to be over when it was over. And so it's really great now that gymnasts like Suni and Jade can really try both and see yeah. what comes of it for them. And they don't have to be made like, they don't have to make a false choice, really. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, it's good for college gymnastics, too. There, it seems like college gymnastics has gained in popularity over the past few years. And there's, there's more chance for, for that sport to really keep the focus on gymnastics during the you know the non-olympic years um and and keep keep people interested and then we have an olympics in three years three years we only get three years (laughs) three years it's not enough time i'm not gonna be done like recouping all my lost sleep you know between now and paris from this past week (laughs) i think i think you're right well i i hope that you get some rest here over the next couple of weeks now that the the uh, gymnastics is over the olympics are always are almost over but it is great to talk to you devora and thank you for your insights into the sport thanks so much for having me let's take a break and we'll be back in just a moment for our rabbit hole of the week we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. So I'm obviously going to talk about the Olympics. (laughs) The Olympics are consuming every waking moment for me right now. This rabbit hole is actually adjacent to a rabbit hole I went down in 2019, which just shows the depth and consistency of my love of the Olympics. Um, I talked then about records in the three big sports, track, swimming, and gymnastics. In swimming, the suits have changed dramatically over the years, making it really hard to compare eras. Gymnastics has a completely different point system than it did 15 years ago with the end of the Perfect 10. And even since then, skills can be valued differently in different Olympic cycles. So it's hard to compare even scores from the same gymnast over different quads. Track has its own complications. Advancements in in both shoes and the track itself can definitely have an effect. And we seem to be seeing some of that in Tokyo. The track is very bouncy, apparently, which seems more fun at the very least. But still, track is probably the most consistent among the big three sports. And that's one reason I think it's so cool to see runners getting consistently faster and continuing to break records. During that 2019 rabbit hole, I talked about two world records in women's track that have stood the test of time. One was the record in the 800 meters set by Czech runner Yarmila Kraktokvilova, who finished in 1 minute and 53.28 seconds. Since she did that in 1983, no one else has broken 154, and only one other woman ever broke that mark, Nadezda Alizarenko of Russia, who set the Olympic record in 1980 at 153.43. South African runner Castor Semenya has gotten closest to those marks during this Olympic cycle, and she has three of the 10 fastest times ever. But of course, Semenya wasn't allowed to compete in this year's games because of arbitrary rules around testosterone testing. In this year's race, held this morning, the winning time was 155.21, run by American gold medalist Athing Moo. 
So both the world and Olympic records in that race are still safe all these years later. But a different old record, not so much. Florence Griffith Joyner set an Olympic record in the 100 meters at the 1988 Games in Seoul with a 10.62 sprint. On Saturday, Jamaica's Elaine Thompson-Hurrah broke that record by just one hundredth of a second as Jamaican women swept the medals. Flojo's world record, though, isn't going anywhere. Earlier in 1988, at the U.S. Olympic Trials in Indianapolis, she ran an astounding 10.49 seconds in the race. No one has ever come within even a tenth of a second of her time. Now, the controversy around that time involves wind. (laughs) The wind was recorded as zero meters per second that day, but there's been a ton of speculation that the wind meter wasn't working right. It was reported elsewhere as having been a breezy day in Indianapolis. Any wind over two meters per second would have meant the run was considered wind-aided and not eligible to be a world record. I even found an academic paper that estimated the wind speed based on the other race times that day at at up to seven meters per second, which I think is an excellent use of academics to measure, <laughs> to compare athlete runs and try to figure out wind speed. Love that. But no one knows for sure. And even if there was a malfunction, it was hardly the runner's fault. The following day with a wind speed properly recorded for sure of 1.2 meters per second, Flojo ran her second best time ever at, at 10.61, which is what Thompson Hurrah ran on Saturday. So no matter what else happened, she was very fast. Without a real wind reading, that record stands. Probably will stand for a while since no one has come even remotely close. And honestly, I kind of like that. Runners right now might have better shoes and a bouncier track, and and Flojo may have had some wind. These runners have something to shoot for, and they're just going to keep coming for these records. And and you love to see it. And I love that Flojo stands still. I love it. Yeah, no, it it is cool. I mean, I, I... I was actually found myself looking at some of the records and it's amazing in track how long, you know, both men and women, there's occasionally records that just have hung around for, you know, 40 years, 30 years. You look at like Mike Powell long jump record in 91, that still stands. And it's just our natural inclination is to think um, that, humans are getting bigger faster stronger and that everything will will break but some of these have stood the test of time and it's impressive i i will say not to be like total debbie downer and no accusations here obviously well actually these are kind of backdoor accusations so i have to be careful um but you know the the late 80s there was a lot of like pds and track and i wonder you know i hate to be that guy but i wonder how much of that could have been a factor you know certainly with flojo there was speculation there was speculation but she was tested a lot yeah and never failed a test she was she was and um you you know the same thing with you know carl lewis you know there's always speculation and um you know obviously marion jones was a different story and she was stripped of her medals but yeah so that's probably not the answer but it is it is cool to see uh, the you know and at the same time records are breaking you know it's not it's not like they're they're all in the eighties you know we saw the um the Norwegian guy you know yes. just break the other last night in the in the hurdles um so it is possible yeah absolutely 
That race was awesome because the, the American ran the, the American record in his fastest time, and he lost. That's amazing to me. That was that was a fast race. Especially watching it, it was amazing. Just watching the hurdles in the driving rainstorm. <laughs> oh was yeah, like a, just did not seem safe at all. Yeah, during the semifinal heats for the women, the you know it was really raining, and um, Dal- Dalila Muhammad just like meh. Smooth, easy. I'm excited for that final tonight. But yeah, Karsten Warholm of Norway winning, setting that record. Um, I did in the 200 meters, the women ran that this morning. And Flo Jo's record does still stand in that as well. So she, you know, she's got these records from the 80s still. And I think that's great for I, I, I kind of like that also in terms of the 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 accusations around her. And maybe some of that comes from her dying young, too. Yeah, it's I easier. Think, I think she's not here to defend factor. herself. Yeah, I think that, but also, yeah, I mean, I think people sort of connect those those two and, and, and that leads to some of the speculation. But I think a lot of it just has to do with the time. I think so, too, that it was happening elsewhere. It was easy to paint everyone yes. with a brush, that brush. Yes. I mean, that was, you know, you saw that in cycling. You assumed like everyone was doping because of Lance Armstrong. Also, everyone was doping, but you definitely like painted everybody with yeah. that brush. Yeah. Um, this morning, uh, Elaine Thompson Herrera, who's having an amazing Olympics, she won the 200 meters, but she was 0.2 seconds behind behind Flojo's record, which was set in that 1988 games in Seoul. What a fast! <laughs> what a, I wonder. I want to know if that track was bouncy at all. In yeah, Seoul, or the wind. Helped. I mean, the wind yeah. thing is 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 uh, you know, it does seem like I can't really comprehend it because we've seen so many records, you know, sort of get an asterisk or not count because of the wind but i'm like for instance did it factor in that the guy broke the hurdle record in a driving rainstorm yeah yeah so i guess we don't count weather in that regard right yeah i can't believe they make them run in that it seems dangerous it does seem dangerous I, i think i would fall although also let's be honest could i even like at any point, jump over a hurdle. Just a no. hurdle. No, yeah. not at all. Not at all. If, if it I, was, if I took like a high jump approach to a hurdle, I was like, if I hoisted <laughs> myself up over it, maybe. <laughs> hurdles, man. Hurdles are amazing. I I would watch those all day long. All right. Well, that will do it for this rabbit hole and for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on your podcast app. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Madlin. For Jeff and Devorah, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. <laughs>